book of Hebrews is a book of encouragement. I'm going to preach from John, but I want to read a passage to you. Uh, it says in Hebrews 10:23, "Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Uh, and he's saying this, you, plural, and then watch this. How, how can you stimulate each other to love and good deeds? Well, you've got to be in contact with them some way, right? Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Have you ever seen an over-encouraged Christian? <laughs> encouraging one another. As you watch LeBron James in the NBA playoffs, I think the Heat's going to win it anyway. But anyway, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near, <clears throat> some of you can't be stimulated because you don't get around the folks that can stimulate you. We corporately meet to stimulate each other by song, by testimony, by the word, uh, hopefully by interacting with one another. And uh, uh, as the day of Christ gets closer, as we live in the day of demonic spirits and demonic oppression of everything that promotes Christ, uh, we'll meet tonight. And this young man over here, Matt Nicosia, it's our first time to have Matt preach to the church. Uh, he's taught on many different levels, heads our men's uh, ministry, and uh, one of our deacons, and uh, I think we'll find out what all God's going to do with him as a preacher, but he loves the Lord. He's on a job. He'll be working five days this week, driving to Santa Rosa, raising three kids, paying bills, getting up as early as you, and he's going to preach tonight, and uh, it'd be wonderful if you'd come, first of all, to support Jesus uh, support the saints that need to be stimulated. Might be an encouragement to a, a man. An empty building. Nothing will drain you any more than an empty building. You know, it's kind of draining today, breaking back preaching after last week. Because first service is maybe uh, 50%, maybe. But last week it was full, right? But we can't feed you every week. <laughs> feed you the word. Deborah and I have tried to figure out how we go one service all through the summer because we love, it's a different kind of meeting. There's an excitement. And so uh, many of you are so faithful to come out at night. I encourage you to come. Uh, it might be radical Christianity for you because you never grew up with folks that need, maybe think it could be good all day, but it can't. And I think we need the stimulation. If you want it, if you want to be encouraged, if you want to be stimulated, I encourage you to come. And there's a little thing we do uh, that you might call a rabbit's foot, and that would mean you have no idea. 
we actually break bread and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if there's baptisms, we would do it. There's none tonight. But we encourage you to come and uh, uh, see me after the service and tell me, listen to me, I want you to meet me after the service if you come, and you normally don't, and tell me whether it was a waste of your time or if it was profitable. Just see me after the service, okay? And I'll have some bodyguards with me if you're feisty. <laughs> uh, turn to John 13. Jesus is in the upper room. Uh, he's there to show the full extent of his love. That's exactly what he said in verse 1. And in showing that love, he does something that is radical, something we could never expect God to do. And that is, he strips his outer garment and he takes on the apron or the cloak of a servant, a household slave, and he begins to wash the feet of his followers. Uh, it's a humiliating thing. No Jew would ever ask another Jew to wash his feet. It was beneath them. They hired slaves to do that. But Christ, in showing his love, uh, lays aside uh, any exterior, I'm, a, I'm better than you, above you, and he's God, and takes the role of a servant, washes the feet of dirty men, failing men, and the men have come into the room competing and seeing who's the greatest. There's no love lost between the disciples. Up to now, I don't know that you could say they love one another. They compete with one another but I don't know that you could say they love one another. Maybe they love Christ. I'm not sure yet. I know at the end of this book, Jesus asked Peter a question. Do you love me? It's amazing how you can hang out with Christ and maybe not be in love with him yet. Or your love is cooled off, whatever. But in this context, Satan has entered the heart of Judas. He's gone out, and it's night to carry out the plot to sell Christ. Peter, later on in this chapter, will leave Christ as well as all the rest that night. So there's nobody in that room that's a loyal friend to Jesus. Nobody. Nobody's got the kind of love that I'm going to stick around if you face hard times. I'm out of here. But Jesus is showing off his love, and they're astounded at it. A stooping God a serving God, a God saying he's going to the cross, a God that says he's going to die for them, a God that models something that he says, I've given you an example, now you follow what I did. So he, the room is full of love only out of one person. The rest are stunned. And so then we come to this section, 31 through 35. It's so familiar that we can make it trite. Let's try to understand it. Therefore, when he had gone out, Judas, that is, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. I think he's not... He, he sees, I'm at the cross, 
I'm at the completion of my mission, and God's going to get glory. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to you, the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It's interesting. He uses two, the words love three times. Your love is to be continuing. Mine is a one-time act. I've loved you here. I'm foretelling the cross. My love act is I came and I died. I want you to continuously be loving one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, the command to love isn't new. He told Israel to love their neighbors as themselves. Uh, but that was national and ethnic love. And Jews became known as haters of the Gentiles and struggle with loving even their own people. And as Jesus illustrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so they had that command. Uh, they had the command to love God with all their heart in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, we've got the command to love our wife as Christ loved the church in Ephesians. But this command, what's new about it? What's new about it? And I'm going to lift out five things about the new command that I see as new territory, brand new uh, in every way. But let me, first of all, give you just a little intro to this concept of love. Love is an ambiguous word. Uh, if I use it this way, you'll understand. Uh, kid comes in from playing outside. Uh, Mom, could I have a peanut butter sandwich? I love peanut butter, and I love you too. Uh, or, uh, baby, baby, I love you. Uh, don't get pregnant on me, don't get sick on me, and don't get ugly, because I'm out of here. Was that love or lust? Lust, I want to use you for my own purposes without any commitment to you. No contract here. Whereas, different kinds of love. We don't have any words in English language to differentiate the shades. Of, Lord, I love you. I love my wife. I love my dog. I mean, it goes on and on. And every time in the context, you're saying, what? I wonder what the word love means in their mind. I hope the love for God isn't equal to the love for a dog. Well, the Greeks had four different words. They had the word eros, storke, phileo, and agape. The word eros was a word that was based upon externals, uh, the physical. So it became used of erotic love, sexual, physical love. But its basic concept was on what pleases the eye, the external. And uh, Aristotle said it begins with the eye. It's associated with desires and passions. And so uh, 
wow, I love that chick. Uh, oh, I love that car. And you might be just saying, I love the external. I love the figure. I love the beauty of the car, the girl, whatever. And so it was used of the external. It meant nothing beyond that. And uh, having just celebrated by being sick last week, our anniversary, uh, I quote one of my favorite love poems to you. Uh, John's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. John's girl is young and pretty. Mine looks like a bale of hay. John's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb but good. But would I trade my girl for John's girl? You bet your life I would. <laughs> See, that's erotic love. That's external. If I get a better deal, honey, I'm out of here. And uh, if you're better looking, you got more money, you got more brains, with a body like mine and the kind of thing you're getting, I got to go where the getting is good. So I'm out of here. See you later. That's erotic love, physical, external. Storke love was the love among family members. I love my children. Uh, uh, I, I love my family. That, and that was their word, storke. Then you have this word, phileo love. We get Philadelphia. It was the love, and it was a love that uh, uh, is a deep attraction, but it was deeper than eros, because it was the word that came to be used for friendship love. And uh, it was that love that uh, we love the same things. We have the same things in common. Uh, I think it'd be real nice to marry your best friend. Some people haven't married their best friend. They married a body. And they struggle, and they usually terminate a marriage because they don't love anything together. They, don't, they haven't found, we, we have the same values. Carol and I were evaluating our marriage and saying, and we were asking, what, what things do you think have been the glue besides the Lord Jesus in our marriage? And we said, well, trust for sure. And then we said, common values. We both value the same things. That, that's a big clue. It, it won't sell any Playboy magazines. And it won't be on the page of 17. But for the long haul, you better marry a friend. You better marry somebody that you've got some things you find mutual pleasure in. And that is called friendship love. And uh, what happens if love starts with the external and the physical, Plato had this famous poem on, uh, it was in his book, The Republic. And he said, a base man is that common lover who loves the body rather than the soul. He is not lasting for he loves a thing not lasting, the body. For when the flower of the body fades, which is what he loved, he takes to the wing and will break any number of vows and promises. But the love of a good character remains fulfilled throughout life, for he is fused together with a lasting thing, character. Character doesn't put on weight, doesn't get ugly, and doesn't lose its teeth, and doesn't turn gray. But if you just love the body, 
Plato said, you're a vain lover. You're a temporary lover. Because the body can't always look good. It's going to eventually wear out. And so he said, that's the vain lover. The word agape, that became the New Testament word for love, was seldom used in classical Greek. Some, but not much. But in the New Testament, over 150 times. It's just over and over, agape love, agape love. And what agape love came to mean to the Christians was this upper room and Christ. Christ became the definition, a love that will stoop, a love that will serve, a love that will sacrifice, a love that puts me above itself, a love that's unconditional even when I'm dirty, it washes my feet. A love that is not based on me, but it's based upon the nature of the lover. No one in that room made Jesus loving. Nobody in that room met any conditions. They were all sinners. They were all competitors. And who in the world could ever build a team out of three zealous, competitive Jewish men? I had a Jewish friend who said, the reason God made Gentiles is somebody has to pay retail. And then he told me, wherever there's three Jews, there's four opinions. Well, Gentiles do pretty good on that too. Other words, there are ambitious going, get with the kind of people. How can you ever merge them into a team where they will love one another? Well, I want to look at five different aspects. The first one is the sphere of the love that he's commanding. He's commanding them that uh, they are to love one another. And this will be all believers for all time. Not love fellow Jews, love fellow blacks, fellow whites, whatever your ethnicity is. Whoever knows Christ, you are to love them like Christ. It's not based upon entities of, uh, uh, let's say, racial, national, uh, gender, whether it's a sister or a brother. All of that's obliterated when he says, love one another. And the Gentile world that this was spoken into, the Roman world, was stratified all over the place. There was hierarchy. There were soldiers in the streets. Uh, women were put on the outskirts. They were only necessary for procreation. They had little place in the culture. The men dominated it. There was racial barriers. There was uh, free and bond. There was slave and free. There were those who had it, those who were poor. All of these different, different barriers and barriers and separating things. The caste system existed. In England, it's, are you a blue blood or just a peasant? Do you own land or don't you own land? And you can't go to the same church as those that own the land. The poor man's got to have a poor man's church and the rich man's got to have a rich man's church. Absolute hypocrisy in light of the verse. The poor folks meet down by the tracks. Us fat cats meet uptown. How can this ever be in the fulfillment of this verse? All dividing 
barriers, racial, gender, social, economic, it's obliterated. The sphere is not love a fellow Israelite, love a fellow wealthy person, poor person, someone just like you. You know, it's like in our church, we love diversity and God's given it to us, but it's not that we just go to church with each other and tolerate each other. Uh, we have each other in our homes. Don't we? Would you go to church with a black person, but you'd never invite them to dinner? What's wrong with you? Are you better? Are they a brother? Are they a sister? Black folks, when are you going to introduce us to your diet? I love pumpkin pie, and I love sweet potato pie. When are you going to have me over? Don't invite me. Are we tolerant of each other? We just happen to show up on the same geography. Well, we really don't love each other. Ain't about to mix. We've got to keep the barriers. Well, wait, wait. Do, do you love me or do you put on a pair of glasses and say, well, let's see what color you are first? Or what gender are you first? Or uh, are you wealthy, not wealthy? Uh, what's so, but, oh, but wait, wait. Are you a Republican? <laughs> That's real important. You've got to know what political party they are. I was in North Dallas, and I was with some guys. They could not believe you could be born again and not be Republican. <laughs> and there was one union man there, John Pugh, who happened to be a Democrat. And I said, you know what? I believe you're going to heaven. That was radical. Nearly caused a revolution. <laughs> the sphere is you shall love one another. And I must say this. I haven't been to every country, but I've been to India. I've been to Morocco. I've been to Spain. I've been to Israel. I've been to Lebanon. I've been to uh, Malaysia. I've been to Singapore. I've been to China. I've been to about 15 other countries. And as soon as I meet a brother and we shake hands, there's instant family kinship, and I don't have any barriers in the way. I'm told we love one another. Just like that. Love one another. Two, he said there's a new measure for our love. He used to say, love your neighbor as yourself. He switched it. Don't love them as yourself. Love them even as I have loved you. Let me ask you a question. How has God loved you? How, wait, do you ever just sit down and uh, I had to do this this morning. I hadn't really thought about it. I thought, uh, if someone asked me, well, uh, you say Jesus loves you. How? And uh, I thought you'd ask that, so I wrote them down. I, I, uh, I wrote things like this. Number one, he sought me out. I would have never known him, but he wanted to know me. Whoever takes the initiative impresses me. How did you get to know God? Well, I looked him up. No, I didn't. He, he looked me up. He told them, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And, and 
I've seen a whole lot of believers I've never chosen. I'll look at the notes. Um, God's people aren't always the nicest people in the world. That's even after God's been working on them. They're not, not easy. A lot of cantankerous saints. It's a shame. He came to where I was. I didn't go up to the throne and bring him down. He came down to the pit to bring me up. Uh, when he found me, he did the washing, but I didn't know the cleanser would be his own life's blood. I didn't know it was that expensive. For me to be clean, he had to die. He actually bought me and redeemed me. Uh, he bore the complete wrath of God against me, and Isaiah said it this way, you, Jesus, were wounded for my transgressions. You were bruised for my iniquities, and the beating or the chastisement, the judgment that brought me peace, you bore. Um, he reconciled me to God, and then it says, I've loved you like the fathers loved me. And I got to thinking about that. But Jesus, you had to be easy to love. You did everything the Father said. You were perfect without sin. When you start loving me, I'm full of sin, full of weakness, full of failings. It's totally different. God loves something perfect. You're willing to love me just like your Father loved you. He says that in chapter 15. Now you're going to love something imperfect. Big difference. And he said, I'll tell you how I'll do it. I'll seek you. I'll serve you. I'll sacrifice for you. I'll forgive you. Uh, I'll prefer you over myself. And I'll make you my own forever. The measure of how I'm to love you is like Christ loved me. Have you ever seen believers that struggle to forgive? Just can't forgive her. Uh, uh, I call them the touchy saints sometimes. Always touchy. Always getting hurt. Uh, touchy, touchy. You know, they had those two people in the Philippian churches. Odious and soon touchy. Chapter 4. Uh, always being offended by something. Church not friendly enough. Didn't do I had one of our elders tell me about a Bible study he has. And the person, don't even go to church anymore, but came to the study and started telling the group, you don't love like you ought to. You don't love me like you should. And you do, 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 do. And uh, love as I have loved you. Take the initiative. Serve. Stoop. Humble yourself. And when you're dealing with fellow sinners who go to the body of Christ, <clears throat> you'll have to forgive a lot, forbear a lot, bear a lot, because, see, God puts you in a family of sinners just like you. <clears throat> and there's some days you can't hardly stand you. 
But you want us to stand you. <laughs> Love people in the body of Christ, believers. This isn't saying love the world this way. If it doesn't start with us, it's not going to go out to the world. The light that shines furthest shines brightest at home. I can't stand my wife and I hate my kids, but let me tell you about Jesus. He, he, love, he could save you. you what, wait, you can't stand your wife, hate your kids? Yeah, yeah. I can't stand people, but I love Jesus with all my heart. No, you don't. You're a liar, according to 1 John. You can't know the Son and not love his children. Love as I have loved. That's the new measurement. And I, uh, I think it's a risky thing. Uh, I, I think much of the Christianity I grew up with in my early days uh, the groups I was with, always measured your uh, relationship with God by what you didn't do. You know, we used to quote the little line, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. <laughs> well, good, good, good. At least your teeth are clean. <laughs> but it was, you don't do this, you don't do that, and you don't do this, and you don't do that. Wait, I'm going to ask you, what's the one thing you started doing. And he said, if you know me, you start loving my children. You start loving my family. You start loving one another. Have you ever heard of a church split? Do you think that was in the will of God? Fuss and fight over so many things. We've got to contend for this spirit of loving. Because one of the great dangers the Ephesian church fell in and it's a tough balance. It's not easy what I'm going to say. He said to them, you hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. But your problem is not what you hate, it's you've quit loving me as your first love. And uh, I went to uh, some wonderful schools. But I, I, uh, I wound up going to school in this area that were uh, non-ecumenical, would not support Billy Graham. They just disagree with the way he did it. And I think on many of the issues, they were right. Uh, they were separatist Baptists, strict Baptists, God's people, wonderful people, but strict. Uh, don't want to have any part of this. And they, they always had a list of who you couldn't be with, what you couldn't support. And then I went to a seminary that was stricter than them. It was a Bob Jones of the West Coast. I didn't know that. Strict, strict, strict. And don't do this, can't do that. And in their battle and quest for truth as they saw it, and for... Uh, uh, issues that many of them, I feel, they were right on. In the middle of it, they became known as scrappers, critical, uh, non-attractive, because they were known for what they were against and never known for what they were for. There are some folks that don't like John MacArthur. You know why? You don't have to guess where he's at. And in a day of fluff, fluff, and I think I have an opinion, he gets up, boom. Boom. 
That's what it says. Well, you could have said it with more love. Truth doesn't need love. It just needs to be said. Truth in love. Put the truth before the love. Ephesians 4. Don't tell me a lie in the name of love. You don't love me, honey, when you're lying to me. Love tells the truth. It's too deep for some of you. That's okay. I want the truth. Don't lie to me in the name of love. Tell me the truth. And so people will hear him say, where's the love? What does the love say? Where's the truth? And we're in a day when we fight error, when we want to defend ourselves against falsehood and bad doctrines and bad teachings and God knows everything's blowing through the church now and some of you don't have enough discernment to know what's right and what's wrong. Well, leaders don't have that luxury. We got to stand up. What is the truth? Declare it with conviction. Preach the word without apology. But in that, the battle is while you're telling the truth, be loving the people. Be loving. That balance is a a tough balance because you can go either way. I'm so loving I won't ever address hard issues. I won't ever tell what the, I won't ever practice church discipline because we're too loving. You're more loving than God. God practices it. God put it in his word. Don't tell me you love as much as God. You're a coward to do his word. His word before your sentimentality. I ain't afraid of you. I'm preaching. I'm not afraid. Uh-uh. I feel as bold as a lion when I'm telling you the truth. Because truth is enough for a vote. Truth is true. And I didn't start a local church to be a politician and get along with every person who attends. I said, I want to get along with God, and I want to preach this Bible. And if you show it in the Bible, I'm going to preach it. And even if they throw me out and we close up, so be it. I went down preaching the truth. It's on God. It's on God. So the measurement is Christ. I'll say two things. We don't have time to develop them. Two things required to do the new commandment is the new birth. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. He said, unless you've been born of God, you can't love like God loves. So we know the new commandment requires a new birth because it's not in man to love. And uh, we just, we have to have a new nature. God's got to do a work in our heart because we're self-centered and for me by nature, but a part of the new nature and the new birth in us is it makes us love those in the family. I'd say the fourth thing, and I don't have time to develop it, is it requires a new power. The men in the room didn't have the power to obey the command, so they had to wait in the upper room until the Spirit came. And so you see Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit, and the first thing we'll see is you will love, have joy, have peace. We are spirit-animated people, spirit-empowered people, and the first obvious evidence of that power ought to be the way we love. The way we love. Not what gift we have, not all the power we claim. You need the power of God to love people because they're not lovely all the time. 
They're not lovely all the time. Even your kids. That's what Deborah was saying. I need the love of God just to love my kids. Well, you need the Spirit of God, according to Ephesians, just to love your wife. And she could be the best woman in town. But the problem's not with her. The problem's with you. He didn't say she did anything to fail. So you need the Spirit-filled life just to love your wife like Christ loves the church. You could smooch on her and tell her to fix you a meal, but you haven't loved her like Christ yet. Any pagan likes to kiss. Are you willing to stoop? Are you willing to serve? Are you willing to sacrifice? That's all right. Go ahead and go Presbyterian. Be quiet. I don't care. Uh, amens get weak on it because you're under conviction. Verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples because you will be Baptist. Oh, you gotta, you'll be Presbyterian at least. Pentecostal. Oh, I don't know that they know God. Oh, you know what? Mm-hmm. Did he say... You look for labels? Who will you love? And he said, I'm going to give the world a credential to evaluate every Christian fellowship. And it will be the credential of an observable love. If they can't find that, they have no right to call us Christians. That's what Jesus said. Look, by this, all men would know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, wait a minute. Aren't unsaved men blind? Aren't unsaved men not moved by the gospel? Absolutely. They, they can't see truth. They don't know if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. They care less. They don't know if you're a pre-trib, post-trib, or mixed-up trib. They don't know what your position is. He said, I'm going to tell you world." judge my people and the first thing you look for is not where they are theologically and that's what you look for a church for you know what I've been with some churches that cut it straight that I don't want to attend they're as cold as a refrigerator and they're dead right and I don't want to be in a cemetery I want to be where I can sense like I'm being loved I want to be loved now some of you don't because you got all your needs met, just give me a sermon, and my biggest criteria is get me out on time. <laughs> Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, The Church Before the Watching World, and he had a chapter called The Marks of a Christian, and he said two things a watching world must see in the church. One is an observable love, and two, an observable purity. That if we don't take doctrine and theology serious, we will go into liberalism, deny the deity of Christ, the inspiration of scriptures, and they must see that we are contenders for the truth. We will not sell out truth. We must see purity in the church, and that's why they must see discipline. But they must see an observable love. They don't need the Holy Spirit to see this. They don't even need to own a Bible. They just come and say, what makes you guys act this way with one another? Say, you act a little weird. You say, you mean we act like we love each other? Yeah, I'm not used to that. 
I'll give you a few illustrations. I've told the story before about an Edwin who works as a teamster, works with some rough men, some rough places, and gets around some very rough circumstances. I remember one time he came, whatever context it was, I greeted him, I think I hugged him, and at first, in the hug, he kind of was a little reserved, kind of like Mark, you know, and, uh, but we're chilling him out. And, and so he just kind of, he, he was a little, and he just kind of, wait, 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 pastor, wait. I said, wait, what, what's going on? He said, you got to let me transition. I've been with whoremongers, druggies, pornographers, thieves, and guys that want to beat me up any day on the dock. That's just the environment. And want my job. And then I come and I see you and you put a hug on me. I'm not quite ready to receive that. I've been defending myself all day. I've been surviving among alligators all day. And now you want to love me. You want to hug me? There's a difference. See, when I come here, nobody wants to hurt me. When I come here, I'm accepted. When I come here, I feel loved. There's nothing like that all week on the job. I had a single woman tell me one time. She said, I find it a delight to go to your church. Nobody's trying to hit on me. I said, what, honey? She said, nobody's trying to hit on me. I, uh, you go out, and said, some churches I've been to, they try to do that. And, uh, of course, if I was out at a singles bar, I mean, it's a one-night stand. Everybody's, uh, I come here, I, I, and she said, I just feel safe. I feel safe. And uh, I told her, you are. Tell the elders if anybody tries to hit on you, and we will hit on them. We're here to protect. I mean it. If you're a womanizer in this flock, we're going to find you out, and we're going to kick you out unless you repent. You cannot be hitting on our women without us putting up a protest. When I'm having these surgeries, Grant, you know, my bodyguard in the first service. That's why no one shake hands with me. They're afraid of him. But... Uh, he, uh, every two or three days, come by the house, want to empty the trash, uh, want to take my trash containers to the curb. He knew the day the garbage men came. He'd come down. He said, I want to take those out and put them at the curb. And uh, he came so much, he thought he was trying to move in. <laughs> and he said, enough, Grant, enough. See, he's stoical by makeup. He just think, cerebral. But he said, I can show you my love. I can sacrifice. I can stoop. I can serve. One of our finest deacons, he'll do anything it takes in this church to make it happen. Anything. Nothing too dirty. Nothing too bad. I'll do it. Don't wait for him to hug you. It's going to be a long wait, honey. But he'll stoop. I think we got a sister down here been dealing with sickness, dealing with a difficult assignment at this time. And I just was out in the foyer in the first service, and Catherine was there. She starts telling me all about my sister and said, boy, all the sisters are trying to help me. We want to 
bring meals, we want to call, we want to do this, and we want to do that. And the gal talking to me is a survivor of breast cancer that's barely survived, lost her breasts, fought cancer for years. She's out in the first service. She'll be out there serving your coffee, setting up, putting the donuts out, and trying to help somebody and telling you how wonderful the God that came and rescued her, even with cancer, is. We have no right not to be showing each other love. No right. It doesn't matter what your color, your social status, your gender. This ought to be the safest place in town where you feel the love of God. We would serve. We would help. We, yesterday in our elders meeting and then the deacons, uh, a report was given to us of all the agape money being distributed so far this year. And what was our total? So far, we've given out 42000 and we're not bragging, but at least our people have had a place to go when they couldn't pay the rent, when they couldn't pay the utilities, when they couldn't buy the food. At least you people, you helped them. You helped them. We don't budget the agape fund. People just put it in there because they want to help. Let me ask you a question. Are you good advertisement for Jesus? Can they see the love of God coming through you? McGee told how he grew up with a widowed mother. His father was killed in a cotton gin accident when he was a boy. He went to work early to support his widowed mother. But he grew up with an uncle and two aunts. The uncle was an unsaved drinker. One of the aunts was a Presbyterian. The other aunt was a Baptist. He said, as he grew up, every Sunday the ants would come over and they'd all have dinner together. And he said, usually for the lunch we had fried Presbyterian and fried Baptist. <laughs> the one ant would be ripping on everything wrong with the Baptist. The other's ripping on everything she like about the Presbyterians. And they would have this whole menu at lunch of what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. Eventually, the uncle He's in the hospital and he's dying. And uh, McGee goes to see his uncle, and one of the aunts are there. And she said to McGee, uh, why doesn't he come to Christ? And he makes a comment, we cannot win a lost world being Christian cannibals, devouring one another. Until you see your brother and sister as a fellow struggler and not the enemy, maybe you'll make enough excuses from now on for why you don't love. Well, they disappointed me there. They will hang out. We will too. But Jesus won't. And Jesus is the model. Jesus is the power. Every man in this room is going to disappoint him and he's going to turn them into leaders of his church, going to give them the Holy Spirit and it's going to see they're born again because he didn't give up on you just because you failed him. Why do you give up so easy on a brother and sister? They're just human and frail just like you. And do you come to church to find criticism or to find healing among 
mutually forgiven sinners. And we ought to recognize each other. Hey, did you meet him too? Yeah. Did he forgive you? He sure did. What else? Did he give you the spirit? He sure did. And, and I can't stand you. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just think of, of Peter going down to Cornelius' house. And uh, here this first Gentile, this Italian boy. That's with the Roman legions in Palestine. And, and Peter gets down there, and as soon as he puts faith in Christ and is baptized, as Peter leaves, says, well, I'm never going to love you, you know, because you're a Gentile. Besides that, you're really bad. You're Italian. <laughs> Would that have been a wonderful testimony? Or was it the prejudicial Gentile-hating boy named Peter had been changed? He said, Cornelius, God told me the sheet came down and nothing's unclean. I can have dinner with you. I can have you in my home. We're all too uh, isolated. The reason you don't know folks in this church, you haven't gone out of your way to know them. Uh, I, I've had spells uh, through the years of pastoring. Sometimes I get feeling lonely or, oh, I, I tell Carolyn, oh, I feel kind of lonely I don't feel quite as lonely with 11 grandchildren, but, you know, I used to. And, and I said, man, I just feel uh, melancholic, and I don't feel like I know anyone. And, and uh, 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 uh. They call them pity parties. And every time, the only cure for it was for me to invite you out. God would say, do something about it. You call. You ask to get together. But what if they accept the invitation? <laughs> they dirty dishes. It costs to be with people. I wouldn't dare want to say, I feel in a slump, and I actually thought I could feel the love of God if I get with you. My cure for being in slumps has never been to judge you on whether you're loving me. It's always come back. Are you loving them? God hasn't commanded you to be loved. He's commanded you to love. Did you hear what I said? He hadn't commanded, you know, come, come down here and stand around and say, boy, it's an unloving church. We've had this through the years. I don't, I don't have anyone in mind today, but we've had this people that personalities like this. And, and then they'll eventually get to one of the leaders. The church is unfriendly. Have you ever tried to get close to a porcupine? <laughs> oh, no. Anybody ever meet Paul Howard? How many of you healing up from meeting him? <laughs> My brother is living with cancer. He's going to be 79. Living with a battle with health. Nobody's greeted. More people at the back door broke a rib, and hugged you. The Lottie Bordieres came back just because Paul was there to welcome a little boy named Timothy that was married yesterday. My brother was there welcoming. Son, we're glad to have you. Are you the welcome committee in this church or the critic committee? If you're on the critic committee, God's leading you to another church. We can't build a church with critics. You see, we know we're not the best. Did you hear me? We are not the best. I want you to get over that illusion. 
but we're trying to do our best until we see him. How are you doing? Are you doing your best?